sister the one who took the fall Eve my sister mother of us all lift up your head don't hide your blushing face the promised one is finally Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you for joining us today, whether you're here in the room or with us online. You're all looking lovely today, especially those of you wearing Christmas sweaters. I, I was wearing one earlier, but I remembered that Pastor John and I had been speaking earlier this week, and he said, you know, Kenzie, just so you know, don't feel like you need to preach in a Christmas sweater. And I said, okay, yeah, may, maybe it's a better idea that I switch out for something else. So let me ask you something this morning. Have you ever been stuck outside? Maybe it was that you stepped out to do some yard work and you know you told your family to leave the door unlocked, but somehow they forgot to do that. Or maybe it was that you've been walking to your car and you've clicked your keys to open the doors and then clicked them again and then click them a third time. And at least around this time of year, thought to yourself, well, let's hope that the physical lock isn't frozen over. Or maybe you've been on lockup at your workplace, so you run around closing doors and turning off lights, and then as soon as you step outside and the front door closes behind you, then you do one of these and, and realize, Oh no, I left my keys on a table, didn't I? And so you have to call one of your coworkers and say, Hey, so funny story, uh, can you come back for a minute? I mean, I've never been in that exact situation, but, but, but maybe some of you have. 
Now, depending on the exact situation, being stuck outside can be anything from a minor, yet still frustrating inconvenience, to a downright emergency. Now, we know that even around this time of year, there are unfortunately people in our city who are still stuck outside of housing long term. And we as a church are committed to helping these folks and the people who are already supporting them in the midst of their challenges. With regard to that, I just wanted to let you know that today is the final day to donate toward the Christmas Stockings Project. Now, first and foremost, thanks to your generosity, we were actually already able to get a set of essential supplies that will go into every single stocking. And those will be distributed on the 23rd at shelters around our city. Before that, though, we're going to have a packing party here at the church on the 21st from 6 to 8 p.m. So thank you to everyone who gave toward that. And you can give uh, using the designation Christmas stockings. And thank you in advance for helping to make this a reality by putting them together. Now, as frustrating and even dangerous as it can be to be stuck outside of a physical location, what can be just as painful is knowing that you've been made a social outsider by other people. Again, there are all sorts of ways that this can become apparent. It could be through a conversation with someone who's had much different life experiences than you. It could be by walking into a room and noticing that everyone changes how they speak and act. Or it could be by being ignored even when you call out for help. In Luke chapter 2, we're introduced to a group of shepherds. These are people whose jobs have led them to being outsiders, both in the literal sense of working and living outside the city limits, and in the sense of generally being looked at as having a low status. And to these shepherds, not to governors and rulers, not to the rich and famous, not even to scribes and other religious experts, but to unimportant and often overlooked shepherds, a divine messenger appears soon to be joined by others. Starting in verse 8, we read that that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven, and peace on earth 
with, to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Having just heard that the Messiah, the Savior, had been born, the shepherds took off to Bethlehem to see the hope of the world fulfilled. Maybe as they did this, they had a sense that they were participating in one of the most beautiful patterns of God's work that we see echoed across Scripture. But we'll get back to that in a minute. For now, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you have revealed yourself to us in your mercy, in your love, in your grace, in your kindness, in your forgiveness. Thank you that through your word we can know who you are, we can know what you have done for us, and that the, the stories that we read can become our story, that we can experience the same forgiveness and walk in relationship with you. Lord, we pray that it would be your words and not mine speaking today, and that you would use this time to form and shape us through your word. In your name we pray, amen. So if you've been with us over the past few weeks, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, then you know that this Advent series was inspired by both a drawing and a song that are centered around the idea of Mary consoling or comforting Eve. Now, Pastor John has already said this, and I'll say it again. If you haven't yet, go to the what, What's Current tab on our website and read our worship director, Blair's summary of the significance and depth of these works of art. Now, looking at Eve's side of the drawing, in Blair's own words, we see feelings of shame, inner conflict, loss, and grief. And we are taken back to the first few chapters of Genesis. I don't know about you, but when I read Genesis 1 and 2, I often find myself wishing that this section of scripture could be just a little bit longer. Can we get one more chapter describing God creating this beautiful world, or maybe a little bit more about this original ideal relationship between God and people? But sadly, that's not the case. The first humans are tempted to believe that God doesn't have their best interests at heart. That he's commanded them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in order to keep them away from some new level of understanding. Now, Adam and Eve had the opportunity to walk in trust with God, but instead they rebel obeying the directions of the serpent and disobeying their creator. Rather than being filled with wisdom, the only thing that they come to realize is their nakedness, and they hide from God in shame. 
But have you noticed the way that God responds after humanity's rebellion? In Genesis 3, we read that when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Where are you? Rather than pulling back from the people who had just betrayed him, and rather than immediately arriving in anger over what they'd done, God goes looking for his lost people to re-engage them in relationship. There's a specific lyric from the song that this series is built around that I want to focus on now. Lift up your head, don't hide your blushing face. Lift up your head, don't hide your blushing face. You can almost hear Mary carrying the Messiah in her womb, reaching back across time to speak these words of comfort to Eve in the midst of her guilt. Even during this original tragedy from which all other tragedies flow, there is still so much hope for humanity and for all of creation. Even as God announces the consequences of sin and humanity is cast out of paradise, God sets his plans in motion to restore us to to righteousness. God's rescue mission begins immediately. As the book of Genesis continues, we see that a broken relationship with God spills over into broken relationships with other people. Rather than fulfilling our calling to represent God together across the world, humans start to turn life into a struggle to grab power and prestige and wealth from and over one another. And as the world divides itself into insiders and outsiders, we see that God goes about his mission to restore humanity in a surprising and to us counterintuitive way. God works from the outside in. He could rely on human power in order to announce his good news, but instead he goes first and foremost to the forgotten, to the lost, to the unexpected, to the unimpressive, to the powerless and despised of the world. God goes to Abram, who he later renames Abraham, a man with no royal title and no son to carry on his name. And he promises to make Abram's name great so that all nations will be blessed through his many descendants. God then calls Abram to leave his family and country and journey to a new land. Rather than having him stay where he was in one of the major power centers at this time and region, and rather than having him travel to Egypt, which would be the other major power center in the ancient Near East, God calls Abram to go to the far less powerful region of Canaan. From all worldly logic, God has chosen a 
not-so-great candidate to make a great nation out of, and then has made that candidate's situation worse in this regard. But from God's perspective, Abram is exactly the right person and is going right where he needs to be. God continues to reaffirm his promises to Abram's descendants, Isaac and Jacob, and then uses his great-grandson Joseph to save Egypt from a five-year famine. But the new pharaohs forget about God's salvation, and they start asserting dominance over the Hebrew people claiming power for themselves at the cost of oppressing others. Now, in response to this oppression, God calls Moses, a man who is on the run both from the Egyptians and from his own people, to return to Egypt and announce his deliverance. In Exodus 3, we read the bold and audacious message that Moses is sent to proclaim. Now go and call together all the elders of Israel. Tell them, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me. He told me, I have been watching closely, and I see how the Egyptians are treating you. I have promised to rescue you from your oppression in Egypt. I will lead you to a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. The elders of Israel will accept your message. Then you and the elders must go to the king of Egypt and tell him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So please let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Now I want you to notice in this passage that God doesn't tell Moses to announce him as the great I am or as the one who created heaven and earth or as the king of creation. Even though all of those would be completely fair and true titles to announce him by. No, he makes a point of specifically identifying himself with the Israelite people. It's hard to exaggerate how upside down and backwards this would have sounded to Pharaoh. What kind of God would, first of all, willingly identify himself with a nation of slaves? And then second of all, make demands of the king who had enslaved them. And sure enough, here's Pharaoh's response when Moses and Aaron come to him. Is that so, retorted Pharaoh, and who is the Lord? Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. And when they persist, he answers, Moses and Aaron, why are you distracting the people from their tasks? Get back to work. Look, there are many of your people in the land and you are distracting them or stopping them from their work. Pharaoh rightly says that he doesn't know the Lord, not yet anyway. 
And he reveals that he only views and values Israel as a source of forced labor. And in response, this God of the Hebrews reveals his mighty saving power to both Israel and Egypt. This same God of the outcasts, this same unknown Lord who Pharaoh had dismissed, shows himself to be far above and beyond the so-called gods of Israel's oppressors. As Israel is delivered out of Egypt and begins their journey to the promised land, Exodus 12.38 tells us that a mixture of non-Israelite people went out with them. Now, this is a small detail that's easy to miss, but it's quite important. I'm happy to admit that several of the points in this sermon are based on a book called Realigning with God by Brian D. Russell. Dr. Russell comments on Exodus 12:38. The text does not tell us anything more about the identity of these people, these non-Israelites who went out with Israel. But the implication is clear. Outsiders are welcome to become insiders. The inclusion of outsiders reminds God's people of the mission given to Abraham in Genesis 12.3. God's people exist to serve as blessings for all peoples. This includes future Egyptians. Now, time would fail me today to list every time in the Old Testament when God uses unexpected people or outsiders to accomplish his will. As the author of Hebrews says, it would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. But at the same time, there's another pattern that keeps popping up over and over. Just as Adam and Eve had walked away from living in trust with God in order to try and grab power from the, knowledge, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so Israel over and over again walks away from relying on God in order to rely on worldly systems of power and self-determination. Israel's prophets consistently brought two criticisms from God to their people, idolatry and injustice. It's no coincidence that those two go together. As Israel forsook its relationship with God in order to pursue false idols, so they forsook their calling to be a nation who demonstrated God's love to the people around them. But again, even in the midst of all of this chaos, there is still so much hope. Those same prophets also looked forward to a day 
when God would transform his people from the inside out where his covenant would be written on their hearts and minds and when they would be set free from sin to walk with him. In the Old Testament, God had given his people a temple that was meant to become a house of prayer for all nations. And the prophets predicted a day when rather than God's presence being centered on a physical location, it would go with his people of every tribe and tongue and nation wherever their feet carried them. And all of this would come through the atoning work of a suffering Messiah. So back to those shepherds. They had just heard that the Messiah had been born. And that the way that they would recognize this savior of the world was by the fact that he was wrapped in strips of cloth lying in a manger. God was and is in the business of going to outsiders. And in the Christmas story, the son of God personally stepped outside for us. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Returning to Luke chapter 2, those shepherds hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. Rather than being born into a noble family, to be waited upon by servants, the king of kings and lord of lords left his throne to be born to a couple who could not even find a room at an inn in a tiny town, in a nation under the boot heel of one of the most powerful human empires the world has ever seen. Now, Jesus' time on earth is the story of the outside-in kingdom of heaven breaking in and taking shape here. This is a kingdom that belongs to those in mourning, to the meek, to the merciful, to the peacemakers, to the poor in spirit, to the pure in heart. This is a kingdom where the first shall be last and the last shall be first, where the way to greatness is to be the servant of all, and where we follow Jesus' example in living to serve and not to be served. And this is a kingdom that is made up mostly of outsiders, of people who had been outsiders from birth, of people who had become outsiders because of decisions they'd made, and of people who had become outsiders in order to follow Jesus, giving up the wealth of the world in order to pursue the true riches of heaven. 
Finally, Jesus accomplished the salvation of the world by giving up his life to pay the price for our sins. The serpent who had tempted Eve in the first place has had its head crushed by the Son of Man while also wounding him in return. The veil that separated God's people from the most holy place, from his presence, has been torn in two, and the dividing wall of hostility that separated Gentiles from drawing close to God has been broken down. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone of a new temple of hearts transformed by God. And again, this new temple is made up mostly of other rejected stones, of outsiders. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Paul comments to the church in Corinth in his first letter to them, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes, or powerful, or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things that the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Just like how God identified himself with the Hebrew people and saved them from powerful Egypt, so God's power is made all the more clear through calling those who the world calls outsiders. Christ has already broken down all barriers separating us from God's presence. And we look forward to the day when we will be fully united with God in the new heaven and new earth. In the meantime, we live as those who are outsiders to the world, but insiders to the kingdom of heaven. Now, you've often heard it said here at Crosspoint, not that it's unique to us, that our calling is to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Allow me to rephrase that a little bit for this message. We have been made insiders in terms of fellowship with God so that we can become outsiders so that other people can become insiders of God's kingdom, so that they can become outsiders, so that other people can become insiders, and on and on until Christ returns. If you're ever wondering where God is especially and powerfully at work, a great place to start looking is in the spots where all worldly logic would tell you he wouldn't even bother to go. And if you're someone who considers yourself an outsider by the world standards, then welcome home. Welcome to the place where there are no outsiders, where all the walls that the world tries to put up between us are broken down, and where we are all one in Christ Jesus our Lord. Welcome home. 
Come as you are. You belong.